someone tell you all about the ocean waves. There you are, sitting in the comfort of your home, sipping a nice cup of Earl Grey or what have you. And they're telling you all about it, how high they get, how the waves are caused by the wind and the tides, and how they break and spray and foam. You can learn a lot about the waves that way. But that's a different thing, isn't it, from actually stepping into the water yourself and feeling the tug of the undertow around your legs and seeing that wall of water rise before you and feeling it in its power as it knocks you down and you kind of tumble underwater, losing your bearings for just a moment, not quite sure which way is up. Now you don't just know about the waves anymore, do you? You really know them. J.I. Packer in his classic book, Knowing God, says that it's the same thing that's true about God. There's a big difference between knowing about God and really knowing God. And the sobering thing about that is that it's very possible that you and I are here today at church, and maybe we know a lot about God, but we don't really know God. It's possible you even call yourself a Christian and you know a lot about God, but you don't really know God. Now imagine knowing all about the nutritional facts of food and yet never eating and enjoying a meal. That would be a pretty dull existence. But eventually you would starve. And spiritually, the same thing is true of us as humans. And corporately, that is true of us as a church. We need to not just know about God, we need to know God. So what does that really look like? Well, with that in mind, let's look at Exodus chapter 3 together. That's page 46 in the Pew Bible. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses meets God. And this encounter is one of the pivotal moments of Scripture that shows us what it means to really know God. Exodus chapter 3. We'll look at verses 1 through 15. Let me read this for us. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, 
And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So Exodus chapters 3 and 4 tell the story of the call of Moses. And there are really two interlocking parts of this story. In the first part, the part we just read, God reveals himself and his call to Moses. And in the second part, God wrestles with that call, or Moses wrestles with that call. Uh, Next week, we're going to consider Moses' wrestling, his doubts, his fears. But today, we want to just sit on this first part, this first part of God's revealing And the beauty of this text is that God doesn't just tell us what he's like. He actually shows us. And he shows us, verse 2, through a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now, the burning bush brings together two of the most important realities of what it means to really know God. Two realities that we think are so far apart in our mind, and yet God gives this divine picture of what he's like and brings them both together. And the first thing is God's radical holiness. Fire. Fire is an image God uses again and again in Exodus to convey the reality of his presence. The burning bush here in chapter 3, the pillar of fire that leads the people out of Egypt in chapter 13, the fire on Mount Sinai in chapter 20, the fire in the tabernacle in chapter 40 from beginning to end. When God shows up in Exodus, he shows up in fire. Now, I think it's hard for us in the 21st century to really appreciate fire. With the flick of a switch, we can light up a room, right? Our lives are inundated by glowing screens on our phones and tablets and laptops. But imagine for a second a world without screens and a world without light bulbs and without switches, with no electricity at all. Imagine a world lit only by fire. And then you start to appreciate the power of the image. What else is like this thing that we call fire? Fire has no form. It's a material you cannot grasp. And yet you can feel it. And you can see it. 
and it gives off light and heat. Fire has power to mesmerize us with its beauty or to destroy us with its flames, and yet it has no perceivable weight, no substance. This is a very strange thing. Of course, Moses had seen plenty of fire in his lifetime, right? But what caught his attention here was the fact that the fire was self-sustaining. The bush wasn't really contributing to the fire, was it? Otherwise, that bush would have been burned up. Unlike any other fire Moses had ever seen, this one was there of its own accord, and it needed nothing to keep going. And right there, we start to see the real radical depth of God's holiness. You see, holiness technically means separation. Something holy is set apart. In the case of God, holiness means that he is set apart from everything that he has made. In other words, there is an infinite distinction between the creator and the creature. Think about it. Every created thing, everything that we interact with is dependent on something else. The book is held up by the tabletop. The tabletop is held up by the legs. The legs are held up by the floor. The floor is held up by the beams and the foundation and on and on and on and on. Everything contingent on everything else, dependent and finite. But not God. The fire burns and burns and burns and needs no help from the bush. No help at all. And what God is showing Moses through the bush about his absolute, infinite holiness, he then tells him again through his revelation of his name in verse 14. I am who I am. That's a very mysterious name, isn't it? I bet no one's introduced themselves to you that way, have they? You see, names in the ancient world were thought to convey a person's nature. Names in the ancient Near East were sort of a handle on the essence of a person. So here, in this moment, when Moses is moving from knowing about God to really knowing God, what name would Moses know God by? What handle would there be to grasp him? In Genesis, there are a lot of names that God gives for himself. What would God give to Moses here? Would it be God Almighty, like he showed to Abraham? Or God Most High, like he showed to Melchizedek? Or the God who sees me, like Hagar? Or the God of Bethel, like Jacob? No. In this pivotal moment, when God is revealing to Moses who he really is, He says, I am who I am. Or simply, I am. Or in verse 15, which is sort of a version of the same, the Lord. All of which communicates the fact that God is eternally, unchangingly, self-sufficient and sovereign above and beyond all else without peer and without compare, 
completely self-determining. Can you imagine what's that, what that is like? You and I are determined from the moment we are conceived. Our language, our nationality, all of it thrust upon us as we come into the world. And yet for God, utter freedom. You'll notice in verse 15 that the Lord is spelled with all capital letters. That's not a weird typing glitch in your Bible. Uh, It's important to know what that means when you're reading the Old Testament because it's an important thing. When Lord is spelled with all capital letters, it's sort of a stand-in for what we sometimes call the divine name, which in Hebrew, which in the Hebrew text is actually just four consonants, Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. Sometimes you'll see the divine name referred to as the Tetragrammaton, which sounds really mysterious and spooky, doesn't it? But it actually just means four letters, Tetragrammaton. It's a bit redundant. In the King James, these four letters were sometimes translated Jehovah, which you can sort of see from Yud, He, Vav, He, Yehovah. Um, that translation, unfortunately, is actually based on a misunderstanding of how the Hebrew vowels work in that name. You see, the ancient Hebrew manuscripts, they only contain consonants. That's how you write Hebrew, just with the consonants. And then later, scribes went back and they sort of pointed in all the little vowels that you were supposed to say. But that happened a lot later. Sometimes, sometime around the 9th century AD, scribes eventually went in and put in all the vowel points in this just consonant text. But meanwhile, down through the generations, the divine name was considered so holy by the people of God, by the Jews, that they wouldn't even pronounce it when they were reading the Bible. Instead of trying to pronounce the divine name when reading scripture, they would just substitute the word Adonai, which means Lord. Today, if you have some Jewish friends, they might, if you're reading the Bible with them, say Hashem, which just means the name as an act of reference. So the reality is, we're actually not sure how these four consonants would have originally been produced Because in all the Hebrew manuscripts, what the scribes did was they took the vowels for Adonai and they just wrote it right in there over those four consonants. So whenever you hit it reading the Hebrew, you just say, Adonai. At least my Jewish Hebrew teacher told me to do it that way. Most scholars think Yahweh is close, but we can't be sure. So if you ever hear Yahweh, that's sort of an attempt at the divine name. And when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the Septuagint, the divine name was simply translated, you guessed it, with the Greek word kurios, which means Lord. So our English translations just sort of follow the same practice and use Lord. But they put it in all caps as a signal to us that there it is. There's that special divine name that God revealed in this very special moment to Moses. But I think the important thing to notice about the name is that it's connected to the I am of verse 14. It's a way of expressing that almost unspeakable truth. The name Lord is an expression on the one hand of God's radical holiness and sovereignty and self-sufficiency that he's totally unique. 
the very ground of all existence himself. And what that means, if you're here and you're kind of exploring Christianity, you might think, oh my goodness, what are we talking about right now? Here's sort of where the rubber starts to hit the road. What this means is that when Christians or when people are reading the Bible, when we say God, we actually mean something very infinitely different than God's. You see, the gods of Moses' day, like the gods of the Greeks and Romans later in history, yes, were believed to be powerful. Some of them even believed to be immortal. But at the end of the day, the gods were very much part of the whole package of the universe, we would say. The gods contended with themselves and they contended with humanity, but they were inside that cause and effect world of space and time and energy. But as opposed to those very inside-the-system sort of gods, the god that Moses met at the burning bush was the Lord. I am who I am. The holy and completely transcendent one who rather than being a part of the system of the universe, rather than being one of those many supposed little G gods, those little tribal deities, is something totally different. He's the infinite ground of all that is, the creator and sustainer of everything and everyone. And that's why God, in this encounter, gives Moses a solemn warning in verse 15. Don't come near. I'm here, but don't come any closer. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, of course, there was nothing inherently holy about Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, as it will be called later in chapter 19. Rather, what we have here is that this spot is being made holy because the Holy One, the Lord, had made his presence known there. And God tells Moses to take off his sandals, which was a sign of reverence and respect in the ancient world, and to not come any closer. And then God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And when Moses hears that this is the one, the one he had heard about, but now was right here in front of his face, he falls down and hides his face because he's afraid to look at God. Friends, knowing God, first of all, means knowing God in his radical holiness. And we have to ask ourselves, do we have that sort of reverence before the majesty and holiness of God that Moses shows here? And we have to admit that we don't really know God unless we do. Of course, biblical reverence is not the sort of fear that you have before an erratic or harsh tyrant, some sort of untrustworthy human ruler. Rather, this is the sort of fear that you have when you're standing on the observation deck of Niagara Falls and the immensity of it and the power and the beauty makes you tremble as six million cubic feet of water roar over the crest of the falls every single minute. 
Too often, I think we have a very domesticated and sort of chummy view of God. There's no tremble and there's no awe. Rather than God being a lightning bolt splitting the night sky in ferocious, incomparable beauty for us, God is a lightning bug that we try to catch and keep in our little coffee cans, thinking we better poke some holes in the top or else he might not get enough air. And then what would he do? This is what you do when you grow up in rural upstate New York. And friends, the reality is our lives suffer for it. Our lives suffer for having such a chummy, domesticated view of God. Because our lightning bug God can't liberate us from our fears and our anxieties. And our lightning bug God can't rattle us out of the cages of our selfishness and self-centeredness. Absent of God's holiness, we put ourselves in the center of our universe and then we wonder why the planets start to spin out of control. You know, sometimes I think about the beginning of Exodus chapter 3 and I think about the beginning of Dante's Inferno. In the middle of life's way, I came to myself and where did I find myself? In a dark wood and the straight way had been lost. And there's Moses in the backwater of nowhere shepherding his father-in-law's sheep wondering what has become of my life translation he's in Idaho working for his dad's used car shop nothing wrong with used cars or shops or Idaho (laughs) but it's not where Moses thought he was going to end up and he comes to himself and he thinks what on earth am I doing here? What's my life all about? What purpose, what direction do I have? Probably feeling like he blew it too. And how does God show up to him? Differently than we would expect at first. At first, God doesn't come in comfort. He comes in holiness. He comes in such blazing ferocity that Moses for a second has to stop thinking about himself and start to put God in God's place. We don't need the lightning bug. We need the lightning. We need the burning bush. We need the consuming fire. Friends, we need the Lord. But the radical holiness of God isn't the only thing God shows us in the burning bush. We also see God's radical love. Do you remember the scene, that famous scene in C.S. Lewis's line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, when Lucy is in the house of Mr. Beaver and she asks if Aslan is safe and Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. And then what does he say? but he's good. The burning bush shows us not just the radical holiness of God, but his radical love. How? Read again. The bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. The blazing holiness of God was present in power and in glory and in purity 
but that bush wasn't destroyed. And the bigger surprise of all, Moses wasn't destroyed either. You see, that's just it. That bush should have been turned to dust, but it wasn't. The miracle isn't just that the fire keeps going, that's God's holiness, but also that the bush keeps standing, and that's God's love. You see the same thing in verse 15 with the divine name. He's the Lord, the self-existent creator and sustainer of everything, of all that was and is and ever will be. He's not some tribal deity, some lowercase g God. He's the Lord of creation before whom all nations and all molecules and all planets will eventually bow in submission. But at the same time, in the same breath, God says, I'm also the Lord not just of creation, but of a covenant. He's bound himself to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A tiny little family in a tiny little city, a tiny little group of exiles and immigrants. God stoops to be known to the world, to carry out his purposes for the world through a particular human Family. How stunning. In verses 7 through 9, God tells Moses then that he sees. He sees the affliction and oppression of his people. And he hears. He hears their cry. And he knows. He knows their suffering. And he has come down to deliver them. Look again at the end of verse 7. I know their sufferings. Funny that word, know. Not merely I know about their sufferings, but I know their sufferings. Isn't that a curious thing? How could the Lord the eternal, self-sufficient God, radical and transcendent holiness, know their suffering? How could a fire that burns of its own accord know what it's like to flicker and go out? For Moses, that will remain a mystery his whole life. But friends, here's the shocking thing of the gospel. That what was a mystery for Moses has now been made clear in Jesus. Because 1,500 years later, after the burning bush, Jesus came. And on one occasion, he tried to convince the religious leaders that he was the Christ. And finally, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And that claim was so bold and so forthright that the religious leaders, the only thing they could do was immediately pick up stones and try to stone him for blasphemy because they knew that Jesus was claiming to be the Lord God of Moses, the great I am, the eternal and self-existent God in the flesh. As an aside, don't let anyone try to tell you that Jesus never claimed he was God. But 
But earlier in that same chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus says this, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Or more literally, then you will know that I am. For Jesus, the cross was the place where we would see most clearly that he was the Lord. Because it was there that he could display his holiness and at the same time truly know our sufferings in love. Moses saw the bush burning, yet it was not consumed. But here's the mystery of mysteries, friends. At the cross, on another tree, the Lord was consumed. When our sin had made the holiness of God our greatest threat, in love, God in Christ absorbed our sin. He was consumed so that we never have to be. And that is why the eternal God can say 1,500 years before the fact, I know their sufferings. Because the lion is also the lamb. And here's the thing. When you know God in his holiness and his love, something happens. If you know God in his radical holiness, you'll bow before him in rightful fear and awe. But when you see not just that, but also his suffering love for you, then you'll have a mission. Then you're called. The burning bush was the site of Moses' call of the reorientation and repurposing of his entire life. When God showed him his holiness and love, then Moses went from knowing about God to knowing God, and knowing God meant that he couldn't stay the same. And when you and I see them both, you won't stay the same either. And to you, just like God said to Moses, he says, come, I will send you. Very interesting. God at first says, don't come near. And then he says, come, and I'll send you. Three final things, and then we go to the table. First, if you're starting to see the radical holiness and love of God displayed in Jesus Christ, maybe for the first time this morning, then here comes the call of God to you to place your trust in Christ, to receive him as Savior and Lord, and to become a Christian You see, friends, ordinarily, God doesn't usually meet us at burning bushes or speak to us in audible voices, but he speaks to us through the preaching of his word. God still exposes our need for salvation and compels us personally and individually to trust him through the proclamation of the gospel. And he still calls our names. And he still wants to enter into personal relationship with us. Come, God says to Moses in verse 10. And he's saying the same thing to you this morning by name. Come, 
Second, knowing God in both his holiness and love compels us to become servants of the people of God. God sends Moses where? Back to Egypt to be the means that he will use to liberate his people. Now, of course, we have to admit Moses had a unique role in redemptive history, but still today God sends us to build up his church. We're called to be sent into our lives with renewed purpose and courage and love for the sake of God's people and to share Christ with those who aren't yet God's people. You see, you can't truly know God's holiness and love and remain indifferent to the well-being of God's church. And that pattern runs throughout Scripture. Do you remember Isaiah? Isaiah has a vision of God's holiness in the temple. And like Moses, he is undone. And then God comes to him with the coal of his love and touches his lips, and then he responds to God's call to be sent. And Peter goes out on a boat with Jesus. And Peter catches a glimpse of Jesus' holiness in this miraculous catch of fish, and Peter falls down at his feet undone. And then Jesus speaks a word of mercy and sends him out on a mission. Knowing God will change our vantage point on everything that we do and particularly how we view the people that he loves. And we will want to love them too. Third and last, this calling is for everyone. Yes, Moses was unique in a sense, but in the light of the New Testament, we know that every member of the family of Christ has a role to play. Aren't we often tempted to ask with Moses in verse 11, but who am I? And what's God's reply? I'll be with you. I'll send you and I'll be with you. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? In Matthew 28, when the risen Lord Jesus stands before his disciples, he says, go and I'll be with you. So friends, there's a role for you to play. Find your place in the family. Find your place in the mission. And here's the beauty of it. God's holy. He doesn't need you. God didn't need Moses. But God wants you. Just like he wanted Moses. And he wants you not just to know about him, but to know him and to heed his call, and to be a part of his mission in the world. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the table, would you come by your Holy Spirit to make these things real to our hearts? God, we confess we are so comfortable knowing about you. Would you come and would you break up the hard ground of our hearts with your holiness and with your love so that we might know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.